Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. How are you? So good. How are you? I'm, I've been better, but I'm okay. You know, I've had a day at work. Yeah. And um, now I'm home and that's all I need. That's a good start. Right? Yeah. I don't know what we're getting into this week, but I'm sure that I had a better day. I can guarantee that you had a better day than the people in this story. Yeah. No doubt in my mind. Okay. What? That we're just going to jump right in. Okay. Let's jump right in. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about a hostage situation, a bank robbery. It's going to okay. be a lot of things. Stockholm syndrome no, ask? No, 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 no. No Stockholm syndrome. Okay. There's no room for that here. Is there a little eat the rich kind of vibe? No. I would be here for it, Are you? that's are you okay. Just, you're just saying that because we watched the first part of you. It's top of mind. Of course it is. I'm also very angry about that they didn't publish the whole season. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the TV show You, it's called You, <laughs> in case you aren't aware, it's on Netflix. <laughs> um, they, they just put out the first half of the fourth season, and it's uh, about a person who's killing rich people, so... It's called the Eat the Rich Killer, so yeah, but it's <laughs> that's like, what he's referring to. Yeah, it's like weirdly a whodunit. Well, yeah, for sure it is. And they're like, I don't know. It's it was really good. Yeah, I love I love that show. It's, it's very fun. Just, yeah, it's like teetering on like telenovela almost or soap opera. Maybe that's the right word I'm looking for. Like it's just so over the top. It's so yeah. dramatic. We get the idea. Yeah, right. You know yeah. what I mean. It's just so over I the mean. top. But point being, no, there's no Eat the Rich in this story. Okay. Is desperation, we just wanted to rob a bank for fun type of deal? Well, yeah. I mean, don't you think you have to be kind of in a desperate place to rob a bank? Do people Not rob necessarily. banks for fun? I guess people probably do. Yeah. I don't think so. Anyway, I mean, why don't I'm we sure just jump I'm sure there's some into psychos it? out there that just do a little Bonnie and Clyde, you know? Yeah. Whatever. Tell me more. Okay, let's get into it. All right. So, in November of 2000... Michelle Renee was a 35-year-old bank manager at Bank of America in East Vista, California. And by the way, fuck Bank of America. (laughs) Um, unless you want to sponsor us. (laughs) In which case, I did not say that. In which case, you didn't hear Sometimes I say things that I don't mean. Right. (laughs) Right? We don't have to take me too seriously. (laughs) We don't mean that for money. (laughs) (laughs) What? Why do you? <laughs> I don't what? know. They, they, their interest rate is shit. Oh, and okay. I had an account there for a while, and then I took it out. Okay, period. But whatever. I mean, they're not anything special. They're just bankers. You know. Sure. Yeah. Leeching. I mean, it's a very big you know? chain, so I, yeah, I believe that. Anyway, uh, Michelle Renee worked there in 2000 in the month of November when she was 35. And I, I have a feeling that Michelle's gonna come to my opinion. No, let me tell the story. (laughs) Would you shut up? Hey, King, shut up. (laughs) At the time, she was a single mother to her seven-year-old daughter, Bria, who she loved very much. 
She and Bria had a close relationship. She had worked really hard to provide for her daughter and give her a better life than she had growing up. Michelle had grown up in a very difficult household and ended up running away when she was 15 years old. She never graduated high school and entered the workforce as a way to survive. She had many different jobs along the way, trying to figure out what worked for her, including stripping. She went to school to become a nurse's assistant. She became a dental assistant at some point until she finally landed on working at the bank. She really enjoyed the corporate world. She felt like putting on professional work clothes every morning and the structure and security that came along with working at a bank was just something she really enjoyed. And most importantly, she was able to provide for her daughter. This is surprising, though, that she enjoys the corporate world. Like, what a minority opinion. I mean, I guess she just came from a place that was so hectic and not structured that she craved that stability. And she had a daughter, you know? She wanted to be stable. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm just like, who's out there saying, I love corporate America? Yeah, I love putting on my suit every morning and going to work for the bank. Yeah, no, F that. No suits for me, but corporate for me. Sure. On the night of November 20th, 2000, Bria called her mother into her room and told her that there was somebody outside the window. Michelle was no stranger to checking her daughter's room for monsters, so when she looked out the window and around her room, she didn't see anybody, so she just brushed it off. She had chalked it up to her daughter's imagination, but unfortunately for her this time, the monsters were very real. November 21st, 2000 started out as an incredibly normal day. Michelle got up, got seven-year-old Bria ready for school, parked in her usual parking spot, and went to work for Bank of America. The only thing that stuck out to her in her day was that a man came into her office and talked to her who seemed kind of odd, but even that wasn't all that strange. And after work, she picked up Bria from school and they headed home. But other than that, everything was very uneventful. She just had a very normal day at work. Before making dinner, Michelle thought it would be a good idea for the two of them to just relax on the couch for a bit. The two were having fun, Bria took off her mother's boots, and the two were laughing together and having a good time just hanging out. As lovely as a time the two of them were having, that was cut very short when Michelle heard this thunderous crash come from the doorway. She was extremely startled, and when she turned to look, she saw three men dressed in all black with masks on and carrying guns had kicked in her door and were coming straight for her and her daughter. Oh, fuck no? Within the next split second, Michelle looked to her left to see Bria had started running toward their bedrooms, but before she could even really move to run with her, the men had grabbed Michelle by the hair, put guns to her head, and forced her to the ground. Michelle screamed for the men to stop, to leave Bria alone, to get out of her house, but they, of course, were there for a reason. They told her to be quiet, that way they didn't have to pistol whip her in front of her kid. The men told Michelle that they knew she worked at the bank, and they would be there all night until she got it in her head that she was going to do exactly what they told her to do, and she was going to rob the bank for them. They told Michelle she was going to clean out the vault for them, or not only her daughter would be murdered, but she was going to have to watch, and then she'd be next. The largest man had Michelle pinned to the ground with his knee and her back, and she could hear them unrolling duct tape. Once they finished taping Michelle, she still heard them unrolling the tape, so she knew they were taping up Bria as well. Michelle begged the men to show her her daughter. She'd do whatever they wanted, she just wanted to know that her daughter was okay. 
When the men finally picked her up off the ground and turned Michelle around, she saw that they also had Bria pinned to the floor and one of the men was standing over her, pointing a gun at her daughter. Jesus Christ. She wasn't talking or moving, but Michelle knew that she was in absolute shock and horror. Now that they were both duct taped, the men put both Michelle and Bria on the couch together. One of the men said that they were going to ask her questions, but these were questions that they already knew the answers to, so it was a test to see whether or not she would lie to them. And if she did lie to them, there would be consequences. The men had been watching the bank and Michelle for months, so they knew quite a bit about the bank's schedules. Every morning at the same time, the bank would get a money delivery from Brink's security company, so they started their questioning by asking Michelle, when does Brink's drop off the money in the morning, and how much money is in the vault? But they had also been watching Michelle when she was not at work. They knew where she shopped, where she ate, where she took her daughter to get ice cream, where Bria went to school. It had been months of stalking. They had all these questions lined up for Michelle, and she had to answer every single one. And again, she didn't know whether or not they actually knew the correct answers, so she had to tell them the truth, whether she wanted to or not. She's got to tell the truth. And they got her daughter, and they just threatened both of their lives. It's not time to mess around. I mean, give them all the money in the bank. I don't give a shit. Bank of America will live. Yeah, I guess that is the one good thing. It's not like a... Oh, no. Not mom like and a pop small, shop. Yeah, like a... There's uh, no mom and pop bank. Maybe a credit union is the closest thing, but even then it'd be like, huh? Yeah, no, it's a huge bank. (laughs) Relax. Right. No, but she couldn't take any chances. I mean, they had her daughter duct taped and they were three gigantic men with guns pointed at her and her seven-year-old. I mean, yeah. I mean, what are you going to be like? Well, I mean, they're going to lose three million. Yeah, right. I can't risk my daughter's life for three million dollars. I can't lose my job. Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah, Michelle saw that they had a duffel bag full of guns and ammunition. So as Michelle was huddled with Bria on the couch, she could hear the ringleader of the men talking to a woman on a walkie-talkie, and she heard him refer to himself as Money One and refer to the woman on the other end as Money Two. So that was their <laughs> those were their code names. Very clever guys. <laughs> anyway, sometime around eleven PM, Money Two aka i'm gonna refer to them as money one and money two because that's how we have to refer to them as so sometime around 11 p.m money two radioed in that there was a car coming up the driveway michelle was a single mother but she had a roommate named kimbra who lived with them in the house so when kimbra walked up to her home I'm sure she was expecting to just go to bed, but she was met by three men in black with guns in her face, and they screamed at her not to make them use this, meaning their guns, and they duct taped her as well and threw her on the couch with them. At one point in the night, Michelle asked if she and Bria could use the bathroom since it had been hours at that point, so Money One, aka the ringleader, took them to the bathroom to make sure that they didn't try to escape or, you know, do any funny business. And when Michelle turned on the light, she got a better look at this man's eyes for the first time, and she realized that she kind of recognized him. They were the eyes of the weird guy who was at her desk that afternoon. She didn't want to let on that she had any idea who this guy was, but she just noted in her brain that she recognized this guy for later on. 
So fast forward to around 6 a.m. the next morning, it was finally time for Michelle to start getting ready for work. She had to get ready as normal, but as she got dressed and started doing her hair, Money One came into the room, stopped her, and told her that he needed to put dynamite on her now. Their plan... Oh my god. Yeah. Their plan was to strap dynamite on Michelle, Bria, and Kimbra while Michelle retrieved the money, and if anything went wrong or she notified police, they'd be blown up. Michelle had to stand there as this man taped two sticks of dynamite to her back and then put her clothes on over it. Once the three of them were strapped with dynamite, including the seven-year-old, Money One showed Michelle what looked like a doorbell. But he explained to her that this was a detonation device, and if he pushed the button on the top, it would disintegrate them. But specifically, the daughter would go first, meaning Bria. They assured her that if she made one false move, that he would not hesitate to push the button. Michelle wanted Bria to come with them to the bank, that way she didn't have to leave her daughter with these men, but of course she didn't really have much say in what happened. So before making Michelle leave the house, they took Bria and shoved her in her bedroom closet. Before forcing her out to the car, Michelle told her daughter that she'd be right back and everything was going to be fine. The last thing Bria said to her mother was, be brave, mommy before she was forced out the door to go to the bank. Oh my god. Meanwhile, all three of them have sticks of dynamite taped to their bodies. Poor people. I mean, what did they do? Nothing. Nothing. She's just a bank manager. I think that would be one huge reason I wouldn't want to work at a bank. I wouldn't want to have to deal with bank robberies. (laughs) Like, I don't know how often this happens, but I feel like it happens. Like, they get trained in shit like this. Yeah, well, I feel like you get trained so it doesn't happen as much. People who would rob the bank know that there's like buttons under the tellers and everyone's trained in what to do. Right. I would imagine that even nowadays, there's not that much cash in the the bank. It's like mostly electronic. Probably. I don't know. What the fuck do I know? But what's stopping some psycho from like stalking a bank manager? Nothing. Right. The law. So they push Michelle out of the house and she's forced to, you know, now go to the bank. As two of the gunmen stayed in the house, Money One handed Michelle a briefcase stuffed with a duffel bag before he crouched in the back of her Jeep. With the dynamite strapped to her back and a gun to her side, she drove to work. When Michelle made it to the bank, she pulled into her normal parking spot. She looked into the rearview mirror, made eye contact with the man holding a gun to her, who told her, don't fuck this up, before she got out of the car. The Brinks truck showed up at the bank at 8.50 a.m. sharp. The truck would park on the left side of the building from the entrance, as it would every single morning. So Michelle grabbed her briefcase and headed to the vault. She brought the teller into the vault with her and told her that she had to clear out the vault or she and her daughter were going to die. She told the teller that there were men with her daughter right now and a man in her car waiting for her to get the money, who terrorized her all night long. And then she whispered to the teller, I have dynamite on my back, and she pulled up her shirt to show her. At that point, she just opened up the duffel bag and began shoveling money into it. The whole time, her heart was racing, wondering if she was moving fast enough for the men or if she and her daughter would be blown to bits. Michelle knew her colleagues would call authorities, but she made it clear that that could not happen before she walked out of there with the $360,000. After getting all of the money into the bag, she carried it out through the lobby, walked out the door, and back to her jeep. 
She hurled the now very heavy duffel bag into the Jeep and got in. Imagine having a conversation with somebody who's complaining about their life when you come into work today. Like <laughs> Janice is complaining about her cat's hairballs or some shit like that. And you're like, I have dynamite strapped you're to like, me. You got nothing on my day right now. At the top when you're like, I bet their days were worse than mine. And I was like, you yeah. have no idea. Yeah, like me. I like I'm literally complaining what essentially amounts to a semicolon missing or something. <laughs> yeah, you're you know, coding in my problem. code. It's <laughs> just like okay. Like lightly frustrating in the grand scheme of things. Yes. <laughs> so So you no like dynamite. To, so you'd like to make a formal apology? No apology. It's just, I didn't know. God damn. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it's good that she just came out. She's like, I'm doing this. Yeah, I mean, you have you better to. better not fucking call the cops. What the hell else are you going to do? You have literal dynamite strapped to you. And I guess she could have tried to do it on her own, but. Nah, you have to do that. So she threw the duffel bag into her Jeep and she got in and she peeled out of the parking lot, waiting for her next instruction from Money One. He directed her to drive a few blocks up and then get out of the car. He made her get out and get on the ground and on her knees on the sidewalk. That was terrifying because he had the money at that point, so it was entirely possible that he could have just shot her right there and drove away. But instead, he told her to wait there a while, and then she could go find her Jeep down the street after she, you know, counted to 50 or something. She just had to wait and then go find her car, is what he told her. So Michelle did as the man said. She waited and then found her car abandoned down the street where he said it would be, and then she raced home. Michelle was frantic to get inside because she wasn't sure if when she got there, Bria was going to be there, if she was going to be alive, if she was even okay. And when she made it inside, she screamed, hello, hello, and was met by an eerie silence. Until finally, she heard Bria's small voice call back, we're back here. Bria was still in the closet where Michelle had left her. Kimbra was still there as well and was also okay. Michelle was beyond relieved that Bria was alive and that they had made it through this unbelievable nightmare, but then panic washed over her face again. Michelle realized that the dynamite was still strapped to her back. The gunman had ripped the dynamite off of Kimbra and Bria before they had left, but Money One had forgotten to take the dynamite off of Michelle. So before the three of them did anything, Kimbra cut the dynamite off of Michelle's back before they ran to the nearest neighbor's house to get help. Rick Brown, their nearest neighbor, lived at the top of a steep hill. So he opened his gate for them, helped the three of them up to his house, and called 911 for them right away. He told the dispatcher that his neighbors had been held hostage and they needed to send someone out there ASAP. And soon, the place was crawling with investigators, from the FBI, San Diego Sheriff's Department, and the bomb squad. San Diego County Prosecutor Tom Manning was leading the task force investigating the case, and when the bomb squad went into Michelle's home, it took them almost no time to figure out that the dynamite that had been strapped to Michelle's back, and all of their backs, was fake. I had a feeling. They realized that it was actually just two painted wooden dowels, or broomstick handles. But from a distance and in dim lighting in Michelle's home, plus the stress of the situation, there was no way anyone wouldn't believe it was real. Also, it was strapped to their backs, so they couldn't really see it. Yeah. And she had been held hostage for 14 hours. I mean, this was a very intense situation. 
Yeah, I mean, even if the dynamite wasn't real, they still had her daughter. Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, Michelle had recognized Money One when she went to the bathroom and got a better look at his eyes. She knew that he was the man who she had an odd encounter with at the bank just hours before she was taken hostage. He sat at her desk for a really long time, asking kind of the same questions over and over before a woman, who introduced herself as Lisa, walked in and said, Chris, we need to get going. And then he got up and left. But before he did, he handed Michelle his business card. The name on this business card was Christopher Butler. After hours of police questioning, Michelle and Bria were finally sent to a hotel, where Michelle called her brother Dave. Dave lived three hours away, but after hearing about what his sister and niece went through, he rushed to be with them. In the days that followed, Michelle and Bria were a mess. They were heavily traumatized and terrified of everyone. Michelle did what she could to hold it together for Bria, but the nightmare for her was not over. The police continued to question Michelle, and not just question her, but kind of grill her. The whole scenario was odd. They wanted to know why Christopher Butler came into the bank that day. According to Michelle, he came to say that he was a potential client and wanted to talk about investments. She didn't know why he came in and then held her hostage later that night, but she told police that the woman that she heard over the walkie-talkie, aka Money 2, sounded a lot like this Lisa woman who pulled him out of her office. The police were almost treating Michelle as if she was to blame for something, because she did walk into the bank and take $360,000. So Tom Manning, who was kind of the lead investigator on the case, said that he believed her the entire time. He didn't think that she was to blame because he saw the way that Michelle and Bria were together and like just didn't believe that Michelle had anything to do with it. But just the fact that she walked into the bank and like stole all that money, they kind of had to question her a little bit about like yeah. what happened and like, yeah, you I know, mean, you, you got to ask some questions here. I mean, it's 360K. Of course. Also, they wouldn't be doing their job if they didn't check her out as no, a suspect. Of course. So police checked her desk and they did find Christopher Butler's business card. And through that card, they started their real investigation the FBI soon discovered that Butler was a convicted felon with... Wait, he used his real name? <laughs> yes. What an he, idiot. Right. So he was a convicted felon with a history of bank robbing. This is like, you can't write this. You know what I mean? He, he was a business in. card? He walked into the woman's office that he was planning on taking hostage, handed her his business card with his real name, Dude. With a history, and like he has a history of robbing banks. Yeah, and I mean, even if you used your fake name, your fingerprints are probably on it. Probably. Dummy. Yeah. Dude, we should rob a bank. <laughs> no. We'll do better than this guy. Um, let the record show we will not be robbing Bank of America. We will not, but we will be taking. But if money we before. wanted to, we would do a better job we than would Christopher not, Butler. We would not put our real names on a business card that we give to the manager. That's very true. So they soon found out that he had been living in a house just a few blocks from the bank with his fiance, Lisa Ramirez. Is he still there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you he's think he's going to be... He's living two blocks from the crime? Mm-hmm. You think he's going to be so, <laughs> so smart? And he gave, he gave a business card with his real name. Yes. She introduced herself as Lisa... And then she said, Chris, 
Let's go. I guess he was counting on her not recognizing him and then hiding in plain sight. I guess. But that's crazy. I know. Crazy bold. I know. Police then discovered the two identities of the men who helped them to be Christopher Huggins and a man known as Bones, but his real name was Robert Ortiz, and both of which had gang ties. So on December 1st, they decided to arrest Christopher Butler and Lisa Ramirez during a traffic stop. And after searching their car, they found a BB gun in the glove box, but it looked as close to a real gun as you possibly could. Like, it looked like a real gun. And when they popped the trunk, they found a bunch of evidence. They found the black bag that Michelle described the money being carried in, several pairs of black gloves, and a homemade ski mask. Michelle's credit cards were all found in the trunk of the vehicle, and then, of course, the money straps from the bank, and also in the trunk, that doorbell detonator, and there was even more at the house. In their home, they found all of the ingredients to make the fake bombs. There were broom handles that were cut up into small dowels. They also recovered the spray cans, and Ramirez's fingerprints was on those spray cans. So all of this physical evidence was found yeah, like, why did they so keep the easily. credit cards? Because they didn't think they were going to be caught. I mean, obviously not, but... It was an unbelievable amount of physical evidence. The police were like, really? All of this? Is it Christmas? Yeah, <laughs> this is a bit easy. One thing investigators didn't find on Butler and Ramirez was any of the bank's $360,000. But after arresting Huggins that same day, they did recover $93,000 of the cash that he had stashed away. Um, and Huggins confessed and said that he had already spent several grand on a trip to Vegas. And the fourth suspect, Robert Ortiz, was on the run at that point. But authorities arrested him three months later in Wisconsin. And he had around $32,000 of the money left. And he gave a full confession. So he he at least had some fun. I mean, he had a three-month bender. I mean, Yeah, he had some... I guess their cut was around probably 100K. Yeah. So, I mean, he spent like 70K on a bender. Christopher Huggins and Robert Ortiz's stories matched and corroborated what Michelle had told investigators almost perfectly. But Butler denied everything, even when he was confronted with the direct evidence, like his thumbprint on one of the fake sticks of dynamite. And he also tried to protect Lisa and said that she had nothing to do with it. But that was funny because when Lisa was interrogated after being arrested, she admitted that she was the female voice on the other side of the walkie-talkie, and she even took credit for the idea to use the fake dynamite and kidnap the bank manager. So she basically said, I'm the mastermind behind everything. She's like, I want credit. <laughs> yeah, she told police they had been planning this for around eight months and admitted that she was the mastermind behind it all. She said they split the money three ways, but that her and Butler's share was more than $100,000 and it had been stolen. And then she said, to everyone's surprise, that Michelle was in on the plot. Oh. So now police walk out of there wondering, is Michelle in on it? Like, huh? Why would they have her credit cards? Yeah, you'll go into it. I, you're, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You're right. I do have the information and I will tell it to you. So, like I said earlier, Tom Manning, who was the lead investigator, said he knew Michelle was innocent the entire time, even when Lisa was like, and you know what? Michelle was in on it. 
So when he first interviewed her, she and Brio were together and he saw that bond and that relationship they had and he knew that there was no way that Michelle was involved. She wouldn't do that to her daughter and intentionally traumatize her like that. There just was no way. But he also knew that that wouldn't be enough in court which meant that San Diego County Sheriff's detectives Rudy Zamora, Dale Martin, and Randy Demers would have to rule Michelle out as a suspect. One of the ways they did that was to recreate some of the scenarios from that night to see how she would react. Because if Michelle was in on it, then she should be traumatized, theoretically. Which is kind of a fucked up thing that they had to do, but they this is one of the ways they did it. So you're gonna clear somebody by like just re-traumatizing her. Re-traumatizing them. I yeah. feel like we could maybe do better. Yeah. No, for sure. This was 2000. Remember? I guess so. But. Yeah. So when she was exposed to the recreated dynamite packs strapped to them, or to revisit the horrific details, she reacted as they expected any victim to react. But it sucks because any person reacts to trauma different, like differently. Yeah. So it's hard to say like, oh, she reacted correctly because it's like you can't really react in a correct manner. But I guess to the police, she reacted the right way. So that's good for her. But anyway, it's just kind of messed up. She was basically on the verge of a nervous breakdown when she was exposed to these things, which is sad. But so her story, Kimbra's story, and Bria's story were always consistent. And investigators couldn't find a shred of evidence that suggested Michelle was involved. But they still had to take a deep dive into Michelle's life. Michelle didn't hide anything from police, including the fact that she had worked as a stripper for a few years. She said she wasn't embarrassed or ashamed of that because it was a choice that she made to survive at a young age. She left home at 15 and worked really hard to get to where she was now. With no high school diploma, she climbed the corporate ladder all the way to regional vice president before taking the bank manager job that she had now. That way she could be at home with Bria more. And she loved her job. She stripped for a while while she was working at the bank because the money was so good, which isn't necessarily a problem, but in court doesn't always look the best just because it's like you're looking at someone's, you know, appearance. But what was worrisome was that Michelle's credibility could be called into question, called into question because she had falsified resumes. She had claimed that she had various experience. Bro, I do not want to hear it. How many people have falsified information on their resume? I mean, she was also probably trying to provide for her daughter. She was. So I would absolutely lie on my resume for my daughter. She was. 100%. Yeah, so that was the issue was she had falsified a few resumes. And she was a stripper. But like this yes. is the other thing that irks me about juries is like that matters and it shouldn't. No, it doesn't matter. Like it shouldn't matter is my point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she had claimed that she had various experiences and education that she didn't actually have. And she had a bounced check and she had filed for bankruptcy at some point, which didn't look good for her considering that could possibly give her motive. Like she was dealing with financial problems at the time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. This does not look good. No, actually. it doesn't look good. But... It's not a crime to be going through financial problems. She's just yeah. a single mother who's like working and doing her best and she's doing it all legally and like doing her best. She she didn't rob the bank because she wanted to. She was held hostage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, these are like just being 
You're just being poor and in financial straits. Correct. So, yeah, it didn't look good for her. All while this was going on, Michelle and Bria were dealing with PTSD from the kidnapping. So because of the stress, Michelle decided to move Bria to Alaska to live with her grandmother. Her top priority was getting Bria to safety. But after a few days there, she had an epiphany. Michelle decided she was going to go back to San Diego, get rid of everything she had, basically, and then drive back to Alaska for Bria's birthday in nine days. Okay, Michelle, this is not looking great for you. No, she, there wasn't really any evidence tying her to it. They didn't really believe that she was tied to the people who actually did it. They did believe she was a hostage and a victim. They were just trying to look into her past because they knew that the defense and the court was going to look into her and they wanted to be prepared. She had been ruled out of being a suspect pretty much. Yeah, she was, it wasn't like, oh, you can't leave the state kind of thing. And she was like on the run. Worried. It was just like a, we're having a hard time and we're going to go stay with my mom. Yeah, kind fuck of thing. this, going to Alaska. Pretty much. And it was good for her because it was after that, like going back to San Diego and then driving back to Alaska that she and her daughter actually started to heal. It was the first time that they had like felt safe in a really long time. However, just a year later, Michelle would be back in San Diego for the trial. Christopher Butler and Lisa Ramirez were going to be tried first. Michelle thought that there was no way the trial was going to be anything but a slam dunk. There was just so much evidence. But for some reason, Lisa Ramirez's confession was found inadmissible in court. So she had told police that she was the mastermind and like told them everything, but they were, for some reason, it wasn't allowed to be shown in court. So the jury didn't hear it. Yeah. So the jury couldn't hear any of it. Wow. She had good lawyers. So it meant that the case against Lisa relied almost entirely on Michelle. And that meant that her credibility was extremely important. And Herb Weston, the defense attorney for Lisa Ramirez, said that his strategy was to, quote unquote, beat the hell out of the victim and show all of these inconsistencies that the victim is saying. So when you think about like, Yeah, when you think about like the worst type of lawyer, just a lawyer being like a shark, like a slimy, gross kind of defense attorney. Yeah, morally bankrupt attorney. Yeah, morally not great. Think of this guy. What's his name again? Herb Weston. Yeah, you know, you need a defense, but I don't know, just your strategies to like traumatize the victim and see if they can keep the story straight. No, but yeah, but the thing is, is like that was his strategy. He knew fully that Lisa Ramirez was guilty. He knew that her confession was a thing. He knew everything about this case. He knew that Michelle Renee was a victim. And yet his strategy was to attack Michelle. That was his strategy. Yeah, it's not great. And it got ugly on the stand. The questioning got very confrontational which was by design because Herb wanted Michelle to get pissed off because if she was angry, she wouldn't come off as credible. She was basically being treated as the criminal during this cross-examination. Weston implied Michelle was lying about recognizing Lisa's voice on the walkie-talkie, and he pointed out that it wasn't in any of the FBI reports, like saying that Michelle had never told police that she recognized Lisa's voice, which she had. But it wasn't in any of the reports for whatever reason. Really? So it was just like a a fuck up, like someone messed up and they didn't report it. But she had told police that, but it was never written down. Herb Weston grilled Michelle about bait money. 
In banks, they have traceable bills that they keep in their vaults to trap bank robbers specifically, but she didn't take any of this bait money. And so he asked her why she didn't take the bait money. And she told the court that it was because they told her not to give them any funny money, quote unquote. So they obviously knew about this bait money and she believed that she had dynamite strapped to her back. So she wasn't going to do anything that would potentially get her daughter blown up. Yeah. But Weston was basically trying to imply that she was in on it because she didn't grab the bait money. Worst of all for Michelle, he questioned her maternal instincts. He asked if she still had the bomb strapped to her, then why would she run to where her daughter was? I don't know, Herb. Why don't you try it out? See what you do. Yeah, she wasn't thinking about the fact that she still had a bomb strapped to her. She was in a complete frenzy. And they knew that. He was just, you know, doing his job, unfortunately, very well. Mm. They went after her sex life, trying to paint Michelle as somebody that was irresponsible, a selfish, terrible mother that would do anything for money. They picked apart her finances, saying that she was in financial distress, which could have been a motive. And just a reminder, Michelle was not on trial. But the defense's tactic was to make Michelle the culprit to make their client seem less at fault. After Michelle's grueling three-day testimony, it was Christopher Butler's turn. He protected Lisa Ramirez on the stand, claiming Michelle was the mastermind and that they'd actually had an affair. Wow. He said they really swung for the fences there. Yeah. He said they met in a grocery store and she had recruited him. Butler claimed that he'd gone to Michelle's house that night with Huggins and, and Ortiz, and he said that in the early morning hours while smoking pot, Michelle brought up the bank robbery idea again and decided that they should do it that morning. He had no evidence of this and never once mentioned that in his police interviews, so it was obviously completely made up, basically on the spot. Like, it was just not true. Really? He thought it would work. I guess. Gotta try. I mean, he's an idiot. Well, yeah. Right? The jury deliberated for five days before finding Butler guilty of the bank robbery and Bria and Kimber's kidnapping, but they hung 9-3 on the charges of kidnapping Michelle. It was one juror who completely believed Butler and the two other jurors were unsure. So because of the defense attorneys completely ripping Michelle apart, they basically didn't charge him for Michelle's kidnapping. Yeah, and that's the thing about the justice system is you only have to convince one person Yep. on a jury of nine people. Right, and they found Lisa Ramirez not guilty on all counts. Wow. Isn't that crazy? She went from being the mastermind, admitting that she was the mastermind to everything, and she got not guilty on all counts. Yeah, because her confession was not admissible. Yep. She got off. They're yeah. like, there was no way that they do that if they knew she confessed. No, of course not. Because they, they didn't know that she confessed. Correct. That's insane, I dude. know. So the second trial was much different. Huggins and Ortiz were easily convicted. But even though the men who had terrorized them were behind bars, Michelle and Bria would never be the same. They were treated for PTSD for over two years. But Michelle finally came to the decision that she could either blame everything in her life on them and stay angry, or she could be an example for Bria. She ended up writing a book called Held Hostage, which was made into a Lifetime movie, which I watched, and it was 
pretty good. And she and Bria went on speaking tours to discuss their experience with trauma because they want to show people that it wasn't the end of them and they actually came out stronger. Both of them had moved forward and healed. And I know that this sounds like the end, but it actually isn't. So in Bria's senior year of high school, her whole life changed again when she had had a medical emergency. She was rushed to the hospital after feeling really strange and like she was kind of dragging her leg. By 8 p.m. that night, she was paralyzed on her left side. She couldn't talk. She couldn't swallow. And she was blind in her left eye. The next morning, Bria was diagnosed with an acute onset of multiple sclerosis, an autoimmune disease in which the body's immune system attacks its own tissues. Based on the scans, she had a very rare type of MS at 18. And she was basically told that she may never walk or talk again. She was 18 years old, about to go off to college. She wanted to be a cheerleader. And just like that, her life was altered once again. She couldn't talk or feed herself. And she had to relearn everything. But in some ways, what she went through as a child prepared her for the fight that she was about to go through. She was very strong and she knew it, although she did say that the kidnapping and hostage situation was nothing compared to this. She spent the next six weeks in the hospital, two to three times a day in physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. She wrote her college essay from her hospital room, from her wheelchair, and said, I'm going to college. I'm going to be the first person in my family to graduate college no matter what. And she said, I now know that there is no time to waste. Life can change so suddenly. She fought tooth and nail every single day for every single step that she took, and she walked out of the hospital. For the next year and a half to two years, Michelle became her full-time caregiver, and they worked to rebuild everything. And despite the odds, she made it to college. She relapsed three times her first year in college and had to come home, but she did it. She worked incredibly hard, but made it through and seems to be doing amazing. She is walking and talking and is doing amazing. Wow. Awesome. Good for her. I love the, like, you're not going to fucking keep me down attitude. Yeah. That just shines through. What do you mean that she relapsed, though? So MS is, it can it can kind of come back. So you have to keep fighting it. Okay. I don't know. I just, whenever I hear relapse, I think of addiction. So I was like, no, yeah, I don't think that this was the case here. No, it's not addiction by any means. It's just yeah, like no. a... <laughs> like, I think that she was probably doing everything right. No, it's just kind of something that can like flare up or like come back or things like that. So you, you have to kind of keep fighting it. Wow, that sucks. From what I understand. But um, that's also not all. So we're not done yet. Are you kidding? <laughs> I know I... people catch a break. I, I keep... Sounding like I'm done, I'm not done. So in uh, June of 2020, Christopher Butler was up for parole, aka Money One. What a great year to be up for parole. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. So uh, Tom Manning made sure that he was at the hearing because he wanted to ask Butler about the story that he made up on the stand. And he knew that it was a risk because it was possible that he would take these lies about Michelle to the grave. But thankfully, at the hearing, he recanted his entire story and admitted that Michelle and he never had a relationship. It was a relief for Michelle, but those lies about her had been blasted all over the internet and the news for so long, and she just wanted people to know the truth. She never, ever would have been involved with something like that. And finally, it was taken back. So the newspapers just printed that. I mean, it was on the internet. Like, it was like, oh, he said 
this, you know? She, I mean, her, her entire credibility and, like, life was blasted. Like, she was torn apart. And, I mean, this was a while ago, and people were like, oh, she's innocent. But still, she was dragged through the mud. Did they even qualify it with, like, criminal on trial? <laughs> Bad person says stupid thing. Person on trial for kidnap and robbery makes this story up. Right. Or just says this. I don't know. Point being, Michelle wanted the truth out there, and now it finally is. Yeah. So he blamed his old flame, Lisa Ramirez. Okay. But Butler yeah, said he was... We don't have agency. Yeah, but Butler said he was sorry for what he put his victims through, and even said that he read Michelle's book more than once, and he felt bad. So Michelle <laughs> accepted his apology, and honestly appreciated him being honest after all of this time. But that being said, neither she nor Bria want him out on parole, and he has been denied twice, so he is still behind bars. Robert Ortiz was granted parole in January of 2021, but Michelle and Bria do think that Robert Ortiz and Christopher Huggins could potentially be, you know, fine and even do well being released, especially Ortiz. At his sentencing way back when, he had turned around and mouthed, I'm sorry, to Michelle. And she had written a letter to him in 2011, and she had gotten a reply from him, like, nine years later. That was extremely heartfelt and, like, very nice and whatever. So she's like, I, you know, want him to succeed. I guess he seems like he's actually... You know, remorseful. Remorseful, and, and you know, she wants him to do better. Cool. So that's good. Um, looking back on everything, Michelle says the best thing that has come out of this is the bond that she has built with her daughter. Both Bria and Michelle seem to be doing amazing. Michelle is the CEO of a media company and has written two books, Held Hostage and Nine Days. And I looked at Bria's Instagram. Wait, what media company? Uh, I believe it's called Verb. Verb? I'm, I'm gonna look it up. I think it might be in the podcasting space, actually. No way. Yeah. she gonna reach out? she's gonna reach out to us no i don't think so no there's no way uh yeah no verb media group is a video production service in san diego yeah that's michelle michelle renee fuck yeah michelle look at her killing it yeah and i think bria's a part of it too because i I, really yeah because i looked at bria's instagram not to be a creep but uh, you know it's out there so i looked at bria's instagram and i'm pretty sure she just got engaged so congratulations we love that slay she looks very happy um amazing they both look like they're killing it and we're very happy for them and that's that's finally the end so that's the story of michelle renee and bria and kimbra i mean she's also in the story so i hope kimbra's doing well too yeah kimbra where you at (laughs) yeah i mean you know you would think you'd have had enough happen to you after having dynamite strapped to you at the age of seven. Oh god I know. But wait, there's got, more. You have a really oh rare version of MS. Yeah. Well, I mean, overcome. her. Yeah, her perseverance Jesus. and tenacity are inspiring. Absolutely. That's a lot of fight. A lot of fight. You know what? I guess the moral of the story today is just fuck Bank of America. No. <laughs> <laughs> that can't be the moral. The moral of the story is. If you're planning on robbing a bank, don't go into that bank and then give your business card to the woman you're planning on taking hostage and <laughs> with your real name. With your real name. And then live two blocks and away. Then... <laughs> and then after you commit the crime, 
You don't run. And then also have all of the evidence in your trunk and also in your house. <laughs> Bro. And that's that on that. We can we can leave it on. How about we leave it on? We love that Michelle and Bria are thriving and we hope that Kimbra is also out there thriving. Yeah, I mean, Michelle's got a thriving media company. Yep. That will start your podcast for you and do a videography for your wedding and it, it has a killer website, by the way. And Bria graduated from college? I, I don't know, but went to maybe college. probably. I believe that she will if she hasn't already. If there's any possibility that she could do it, she's going to do it. Absolutely. So let's end on that. Sure. Anyway, what's your good thing? Um, I have mine. Is it the wine? It's the wine. Okay, I can't say that. Do you want me to... Why, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, my good thing is this wine that you got for me for Valentine's Day that I had at a wine bar and I have not been able to stop thinking about and I found the bottle online and I was really trying to find it anywhere in Los Angeles and I was like I will drive far to get this bottle I I'll go to the valley yeah <laughs> I will go to the damn god valley forbid, uh, find me in the valley <laughs> trying to get this fucking forbid, bottle of wine god forbid I will go to the valley for this bottle of wine and it's nowhere I mean it's nowhere and so we had to I mean, we, meaning you, you ordered it online and you got it shipped to our apartment. And thank you for that. Um, for Valentine's Day, but not on the day. I mean, it was shipped the day after and that's really fine. And it's very uh, good. Let me be clear. And it shipped before Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, yeah, it no, was no. not delivered on yeah, Valentine's yeah, it Day. It was delivered like I wasn't that bad. No, okay. no, it's totally fine. Delivered like Get a day or two straight. after. But anyway, it's also <laughs> exciting, not only because it's a glass of wine that I really, really like, but you're in your wine journey and it's a bottle that you also really like. I liked it. Yeah. And I usually, wine is not for me. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, for those of you wondering, it's a Chocolina. It's a Spanish wine or a Portuguese? It's Spanish. It's, I yeah. looked and I know. Okay. <laughs> it's a Mestoy Chocolina. I believe it's a 2021. 2021. Yeah. Um, a Mestoy Chocolina. A Geriaco oh. is the region. <laughs> I know too much about this bottle of wine, but it's good. It's a really and good it's bottle. Like $22. Yeah, it's really not expensive either. It's like us. I love it. It's a steal and it's really yeah. good. It's like a white, it's like a dry white that's like a little bit salty, but in a very good way. And you don't, you're not even a white, you're not even a wine drinker and you like it. So yeah. like, slay. What's yeah. your good thing? It's light and simple. Um, so I was going to do that, but you've stolen my thunder. My good thing is that I got a tea time for Rancho Park and I know that you don't know what that means, but that means that it's one of the hardest courses to get a tea time at a decent time for congratulations and i was able to scoop one up slay so i might actually finish 18 holes wow um but i'm excited because it's a nice course and it's hard to get on to so that is my good thing amazing anyways thank you guys so much for listening if you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about check us out on instagram at not today underscore podcast if you would like to check out the bonus episode that was recently posted check us out on patreon at patreon.com slash not today podcast if you have a near-death experience and you would like to share with us and potentially hear it on a upcoming listeners episode, send it to notodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>